Those of us who consider ourselves to be serious Christ followers would understand that our beliefs and our behavior is surrendered to the truth of the Word of God, that we continually try to adjust our beliefs and behaviors according to what we learn to be true from the Scriptures. But someone that is what we might call just a cultural Christian, somebody that's a little bit religious in our culture, somebody that just wants to be spiritual, often it's the opposite. They formulate their beliefs primarily based on their own opinions. Out of their beliefs flow their behaviors, and then they pursue a church or a preacher to accommodate those beliefs. Basically, at the end of the day, you you can find a church and a preacher that will agree with just about everything. In some ways, it seems kind kind of clever. You know, you can have your cake and eat it too. I'll determine my own belief system. I'll determine how I want to live. Now I just need to find a preacher that will tell me God's okay with it. But Peter would say that is actually the road to destruction. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 2 Peter chapter 2. Last week, Peter reminded us that our source of truth needs to be the authoritative, inspired, reliable Word of God. Reminded us of the prophets of old proclaiming the message of Jesus, but then that raises a concern, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now we know through the history of the Old Testament that there was always a problem with false prophets, false teachers. Think of it this way. Anytime there is something of great value, there's going to be a counterfeit to that. That's true of truth. Paul referred to Satan as a liar, as the father of lies. He's the master of the counterfeit. So the prophets proclaimed the truth, but there was always a concern with false prophets that led people astray. Peter then says this is going to be equally true for us. There is truth, but there's also counterfeit truth. There's a, there's a deceiver that wants to lead people astray. It's worth noting that the concern is not with the atheists. The concern is not with the secularists. The concern is with that which rises from within. We might say under the umbrella of Christianity, those that seem to be saying the right thing, but they're actually in error and they lead people astray. The word that Peter uses is they secretly. It's a word that means they smuggle in that which is untrue. 
true. Paul writing about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Clearly Paul is talking about religion and the Judaizers in that part of Corinthians. Someone comes along and smuggles in something that's just a little off. And little by little, people are led astray. Paul uses the exact same language in Galatians chapter 2. His concern is for the legalist. And he says they smuggle in that which sounds right, but it actually not right. And little by little, it leads people into bondage. He says uh, they secretly introduce destructive heresies. The word heresies, in my mind, is a little bit misleading. It makes it sound like these are really overt, obvious errors. But the Greek word carries the idea simply of a sect, S-E-C-T, a sect. It's just the idea that it's a slight diversion from the truth that begins to create a following, and little by little, they get farther and farther off the track. He says, even denying the master who bought them, it would be right to say Jesus died for everyone. And yet, Jesus' redemption is not appropriated to someone's life until that person chooses to receive God's gift of salvation. So the Savior that bought them, but that Savior has been denied by the false teachers. Therefore, it swiftly leads them to destruction. Now, there's different ways to deny Jesus and the core of the gospel. It's really important we understand There's a difference between churches having differences and that which is heresy, that which is a false teacher. So, for example, there are many uh, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches where we disagree on end-times theology. We disagree on mode of baptism or whether babies should be baptized. We disagree on the way we organize ourselves. We disagree on whether or not uh, people uh, speak in tongues today and some of those type of things. Those aren't false teachers. They're just differences. False teaching goes more to the heart of the gospel, what we would often refer to as the person and work of Christ. To be a Christian church, you must believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe, who took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, was crucified for the sins of the world, was buried, rose again, and is coming back, and offers salvation freely as a gift of his grace. To deny any of that would be outside the boundaries of orthodox Christianity would be false teaching. So how might that show up in our day and age? 
Well, there's a couple different ways. So go back to Galatians chapter 2, when Paul uses almost the identical wording as Peter, that there are those who introduce, smuggle in teachings that are off from the message of the gospel, little by little they lead people astray. He says at the end of chapter 2 that actually if you add one work of the law to the gospel of grace, it ceases to be a gospel of grace and has become salvation through the law. He ends that chapter by saying, if you do that, you have actually nullified the gospel of grace and Christ died needlessly. Almost identical to the language of Peter, that you have denied the master who bought you. You're determined to save yourself through your own self-righteousness. Now, this is really important to understand because I think we have a tendency sometimes to think if people get the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus right, it's somewhat insignificant if they add additional works to salvation. We tend to think of it as, well, they, get, they have the core right, the rest is just like, extra credit. But you have to listen to the words of Paul in Galatians. No, actually, if you add one work to the gospel of grace, it ceases to be the gospel of grace. And you have actually nullified the death of Christ on the cross for your sins. That is a form of false teaching that denies the master who bought them. In this case, Peter's concern is with probably the early forms of Gnosticism. That's, uh, that's the false teaching that most scholars think this is. The Gnostics, their views were kind of confusing, but they did not believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, uh, and they certainly did not believe that Jesus was coming back. So there was denial around the person and work of Christ. They were denying the master who bought them, who uh, died on the cross for their sins, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them... The way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is one of the clues that leads people to think that the false teachers are the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that there was like this separation between the physical and the spiritual. So the spiritual was the part that connected with God, and the physical was irrelevant to that. Therefore, what they taught is you could indulge the flesh, 
live any kind of sensuous life you wanted to, and it had virtually no effect on your relationship with God. So it seems like this is what was being promoted. So they promote this idea of sensuality, indulge the flesh, and somehow God is okay with that. So Peter says many will follow that. Paul says people find a message that tickles their ears, that tells them what they want to hear. I want to find a preacher that will tell me that I can live as I please, indulge my flesh, and somehow God is okay with that. Many will follow that message. He says the result of that, the way of truth is maligned. It is discredited. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now we could ask the question, what would be the motive of the false teacher? Why would they teach such a thing? One option is they're simply mistaken. For one reason or another, they sincerely believe this to be true. They're just simply mistaken. That is certainly a possibility. But I would suggest to you the overwhelming majority of false teachers have a much more sinister motive. Peter identifies it as greed. Greed for money, greed for power, greed for control. I think the history of religion is the history of money, power, and control. False teachers in pursuing their greed for money, power, and control are willing to tell people anything they want to hear in order to pursue their agenda. Where the English text says they exploit you, the Greek is they literally merchandise you. You're not someone they genuinely care about. You're not someone they're genuinely trying to help with the truth. You're merchandise. You're a means to an end. They merchandise you for money. They merchandise you for power. They merchandise you for control. The false teachers are trying to figure out, what do I need to tell these people in order to tickle their ears, in order to get them on board? Because I need their money, I need them for power, and I'm, I need them for control. So Peter identifies the false teachers, make up whatever they need to, to merchandise the people, to pursue their own corrupt agenda. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Idle means basically a do-nothing. So essentially, Peter is saying, don't mistake the patience and mercy of God as if God is a do-nothing, and God has fallen asleep on the job. Just because God is not zapped, the false teachers dead today, 
doesn't mean he's okay with it. There is a judgment coming. And people will be held accountable. Accountable based not on people's own relative standard, but on the absolute standard of righteousness of the character of God. Starting in verse 4, then he's going to support that case using three examples. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. First example, the angels. When the angels sinned, God judged them, cast them into hell. It's the Greek word Tartarus. It would have been the Greek concept of hell, basically a place of judgment to be chained in darkness, awaiting final judgment. So the first example is the angels. Verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he bought, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Second example is Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. This affirms our interpretation from 1 Peter chapter 3, that Christ spoke through Noah as a preacher of righteousness, warning the ungodly that judgment is coming. How many years did Noah warn the people? Answer, 120 years. Can you imagine that? It took him 120 years to build the ark, to build a monstrous boat on dry land. Just imagine the level of mockery and laughter that he put up with for 120 years, as year after year he tried to tell them, judgment is coming. Don't mistake the patience and mercy of God for a God who is a do-nothing or has fallen asleep on the job. Judgment is coming. And it did come. And only eight were rescued. Noah, his wife, and his kids. There's two parts to the historical record that Peter is reminding us of. One is God as a consistent pattern of judgment. Don't think he won't do it. But the second is God as a consistent pattern of rescuing his children from judgment. And you can trust him with that. Which leads to the third example, verse 6. And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, 
that righteous man, while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The third example is Sodom and Gomorrah that was judged for their wickedness before God. It's interesting, Peter tells us clearly, why was that done? As a warning to the ungodly that would come thereafter, that God is serious about judgment. Don't mistake his patience or mercy for a God who will not act. Judgment will come. But in the midst of that is also the reminder that God has also been faithful to rescue his children. Now, Lot makes for an interesting discussion. There's a lot of discussion around calling Lot righteous. What is the basis for that? I would say to use New Testament, New Covenant language, Lot was a believer. Even in the Old Covenant, people weren't made righteous on the basis of their works, but on the basis of their faith. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Lot had come to believe by faith in the God of Abraham in the righteousness of the God of Abraham. So in today's language, Lot was a believer. But I could not find a single commentator that believe Lot is being referred to as righteous because he made such good decisions in the Lot story. Actually, quite the opposite. And I think that's a significant part of the point. If you're not familiar with the story, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot went with Abraham when Abraham went down into Egypt. Lot liked Egypt. In a sense, Egypt got into Lot's heart. So when Abraham and Lot came back into the land of promise... God so blessed Abraham that they had so many cattle and livestock that they could no longer stay together because they needed more grass to sustain the livestock. So Abraham said, we need to separate. So he said, Lot, you choose the direction you want to go, and then I'll go the other way. Lot specifically chose the valley of Sodom. The text tells us in Genesis it was because the valley reminded him of Egypt. Also, there is an editorial comment in that part of Genesis that says Sodom was an exceedingly wicked city. There's no question that the comment is made to tell us this was a very foolish decision. Lot moves into the valley, eventually moves all the way in to the city 
of Sodom. God comes to Abraham and tells him, I'm going to destroy Sodom because of their wickedness. Abraham pleads with God on the basis of the righteous in Sodom. And basically, God promises to spare Lot and his family. So he sends his angels in to Sodom. What we're told here is that Lot lived in the midst of such gross, sensuous sin that it tortured his soul every day. The text is saying Lot was not participating. Lot still believed in the God of Abraham, still believed in the righteousness of the God of Abraham. But without question, Lot had lost his way and put himself in a very miserable position. As a matter of fact, the Greek really reads that Lot tormented his own soul, meaning he made the decisions to put himself in the midst of this wickedness, and now it tortured his soul every day. But God is so committed to his children that before he cast judgment on Sodom, he rescued Lot and his family. If you go back and read the story in Genesis 19, the angels literally had to grab Lot by the wrists and drag him out of Sodom. Whatever reason, he was so uh, kind of stuck on being in that place that God had to drag him out to rescue him before judgment fell. This is a very important part of the story. The fact of the matter is, false teachers are very clever. They're very good at what they do. They're very good at smuggling in that which sounds right. That this is the way of happiness. This is the way of life. This is what's going to fulfill me. And little by little, you get farther and farther off the track. Until one morning you wake up and you wonder, how did I get here? My soul is tormented by the evil all around me now. And you start to wonder, have I drifted so far off the path that there is no longer any hope for me? The point of the Lot story is that God has a clear pattern of judgment, but he also has a clear track record of faithfully rescuing his children, which is exactly where Peter goes with the story. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires 
and despise authority. So Peter affirms God has a track record of rescuing his children. But he also has a track record of judging the ungodly. Verse 10, I think, beautifully describes our culture today. Those who indulge the flesh. Those who are false teachers and those who willingly follow. Want to formulate their own beliefs, their own behavior, and to convince themselves somehow God is okay with that. So they indulge the flesh. Then someone like me comes along and has the audacity to say that actually that behavior before a holy God is offensive and sinful. When people in our culture hear that, they are outraged. How dare you judge me? How dare you tell me that I cannot live as I please? They despise authority. They despise the concept that God is God, that God has absolute truth, that God has absolute morality, and at the end of the story, God will judge. And the judgment will not be on the basis of a man-made relative standard, but on the basis of his own righteousness. The false teachers and those who follow them today should not mistake God's mercy and God's patience for a God who is idle and asleep on the job. God has a very clear, established track record. He will ultimately judge evil. There's also a message for those who have been deceived, those who have listened to the false teachers. And little by little, you have drifted off the path of life. Some of you woke up this morning, you looked in the mirror, and you thought to yourself, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did I make such a mess in my life? How did I end up in such bondage? And honestly, when you walk through those doors, you thought to yourself, I'm not sure there's any hope. God has a clear, established pattern of rescuing his children. Even if he has to grab you by the wrists 
and drag you out of your mess. God has always been in the business of rescuing his children. For all of us, we need to be reminded that there are false teachers all around us. Every one of us are bombarded by hundreds of lies every single day. It is not possible to keep up with all the lies. Therefore, there is only one hope. And that hope is you must know the truth. As long as you know the truth, the truth exposes the lie. If you want to travel down the path that will deliver what your soul is longing for, the path of life, we need to take seriously the words of Jesus. You shall know what? The truth. And it is the truth that will set you free. Our Father, we celebrate that it is your truth that sets us free. But we also acknowledge this morning the enemy is clever. The false teachers are subtle. And sometimes we go on a drift. And we wake up one morning in a place we never thought we'd be. God, I know there's people here this morning, that is their story. They're wounded, they're broken, they're hurting, they're disillusioned, their souls are tormented. Day after day, wondering, how did this happen? And they're wondering, is there any hope? God, remind them anew and afresh this morning. You have a clear and established pattern of rescuing your children. And there is every reason for hope. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.